Where and what was the ancient continent of Sahu? Well, it was uh, more or less Australia connected to PNG when sea levels were much lower. And it was to that continent that the ancestors of Australian Aboriginal people came. But it wasn't just a trickle of people that moved here over a long period of time. There's an argument that it was an organised mass migration and it seems they found out across the continent relatively quickly. All this according to the findings of some innovative research with sophisticated mathematical modelling on uber-powerful computers. The study was done by the ARC Centre of Excellence for Australian Biodiversity and Heritage with American scholars alongside. And the lead author is from Flinders University. We welcome Corey Bradshaw. Corey is the Matthew Flinders Professor of Global Ecology at that fine university. Corey, I want to ask you how you did this, but first of all, would you be kind enough to tell us uh, what the previous thinking about migration was? Yeah, okay. Well, it's uh, it sort of goes back quite a long way. And as more, you know, dates became available, that's dated archaeological material and the times were pushed back, the, the story kind of evolved. But prior to us sort of looking at this in a more of a mathematical way, there was quite a bit of conjecture and assumption about what people would have done. I mean, one of the earliest sort of uh, assumptions was that basically people kind of sort of haphazardly fell in the water and storms pushed them from island to island and then they eventually established populations that would thrive and then move, you know, onto the next a little bit of an ocean. So there's no evidence of watercraft, mainly because it is so long ago. So people just assume that it was kind of a random accidental feature. But that actually, when you think about it, and you put it into a probabilistic framework, that means, you know, put the maths behind it, it's it's practically impossible for that to happen over the timeframes and the uh, number of islands required to have some sort of random event occur for this colonization to happen. I understand there's no surviving evidence anywhere in the world of watercraft that old. No, not even close, actually. I think some of the oldest watercraft is sort of eight, 9,000 years ago. Um, I'm not particularly sure where, but it's in Europe somewhere. But, you know, basically the, the kind of materials that would have been used to construct watercraft would have long disappeared. And we're talking, you know, pre-65,000 years ago. Uh, there's just no way that any of that material would have survived. So we'll never find evidence of watercraft. But when you look at the, the models, they, they suggest that the only way people could have made it here would have been in fairly large, sophisticated watercraft, you know, sort of helmed by a large number of people. And that includes families and children and um, extended relatives. I'd like you to explain briefly to someone who finds technology in any sort of mathematics utterly bewildering, what was the role of a virtual rubber duck? Oh, yes. <laughs> so what you're referring to there is um, models that describe the current ocean currents and the wind characteristics around islands. And we, we have a pretty good idea of how uh, ocean currents and wind would have pushed objects without any sort of propulsion from one place to the next. So you can think of like the rubber duck falling out of the, the container ship and then floating to the next island. So we kind of did that virtually. 
and showed that the probability of anyone rubber duck making it to uh, a next island is really small, sort of in the sort of one, two percent for any given island. Why are you so absolutely certain it involved a big group? Well, that's another component of demographic modeling, where we look at the probability of a population surviving with uh, an increasing number of founding individuals. So what happens is like like any species, humans are also at the mercy of inbreeding depression, which is basically, you know, if you happen to not have very many choices about with whom you reproduce uh, because they're all related, it happens that, you know, your offspring aren't quite as viable or don't have quite the same level of fitness. We've seen this in shipwrecks and it happens in all species and humans are no different. So we include the genetic component, but also just the the randomness of surviving and dying and, um, you know, shock events and that sort of thing. Plus the fact that, you know, you have to establish a new population in every island along the chain. And sometimes, you know, there's up to upwards of 15 islands that you'd have to jump across to get from what is today Indonesia into either New Guinea or across into Timor and then into the Kimberley. So it would have required an impossible number of colonization events or founding events that would have, with, without large numbers of individuals starting these events, they would never have made it. They would have just sort of inbred themselves out of existence. Once here, movement was quick. Yeah, and, and this sort of stands to reason in a lot of ways because we know that the great out-of-Africa emergence of anatomically modern humans, we say, so people just like us with the same kind of intellectual capacity, so that that was maybe sort of eighty to 90,000 years ago with the last main pulse. They made it across all of Southern Asia from basically northern Africa into the Middle East all the way towards Indonesia within probably 20, 25,000 years. So that's already a huge distance um, to make it to the entry point into Sahul. And then once people actually got here, it looks like that people were making it sort of in the vicinity of about 10,000 years. Now, that's 10,000 years to saturate the entire continent of Sahul. I'm talking even southern Tasmania from entry points far in the northwest. Um, that that's roughly equivalent to about 300, 350 human generations. A moment in time. Now, how on earth do you know what they did when they got here? I understand that you take data about climate change and run it backwards. Yeah, so we, we use the same kinds of models that, uh, for example, the IPCC uses to project climate change in the future. You know, we're, we're talking about, you know, unlikely that we'll be uh, less than 1.5 degrees by 2050, probably much more. We use the same kind of models, but we just go backwards in time. We call these hindcasts instead of forecasts. And from those models, we can actually look at the probable distribution of vegetation, which is a proxy for the productivity of the landscape. So that's basically how much food is around and how many resources are around for human beings. Now, there's been quite a bit of work done to look at the relationship between land productivity and the density of people that can be supported by that land productivity. And we can infer that going back um, hundreds of thousands of years, if we want, with these kind of hindcast models. And then what we do is we look at the demographics. So this is the, the survival and births and the deaths all mixed together, plus movement patterns that we develop from anthropological data, 
Uh, a lot of this stuff has been measured, actually. Uh, obviously, we aren't measuring things going back 65,000 years ago, but there's no reason to suspect that our human demography would have been any different than it is today. Well, by running your climate data backwards, you, uh, you inform us that Australia considered thought to have been a largely waterless uh, place. It ain't necessarily so. No, I mean, if anyone spends any time with Indigenous people today in Australia that live in the sort of the, the hotter and more in, inland parts of Australia will know that they're very adept at finding water, uh, whereas, you know, most non-Indigenous would perish very quickly. And, you know, people adapted to this very dynamic and harsh landscape in a lot of cases very quickly, and they were able to find water and return to those water sources regularly. And that, over time, allowed them to develop sort of uh, what we call these superhighways, places that were good for navigation, that weren't too far away from water, that allowed you to see features on the, on the horizon that you could navigate to. And that was passed down from generation to generation. I'm talking to Professor Corey Bradshaw, who describes himself as a Sahulist. I like the term. Cool. Well, my, my favourite is actually Sahuligan, but um, that's only amongst the, the geeky modelers in the group. Even better. So, okay, what were some of the major routes used? Yeah, so that's the interesting thing that came out of quite a bit of the, the research was we've actually used some of the top supercomputers in the world to develop these what we call pathway models from a, from a platform that's very appropriately named From Everywhere to Everywhere, or FET. <laughs> uh, we generated 126 billion possible pathways from pretty much every point in the landscape to everywhere else in the landscape. And then what we did is we took what we call hiking functions, which are essentially estimating the energetic requirement of going uphill and downhill and on flat terrain. Then we incorporated the distribution of water sources that we can measure from satellite imagery. And then we also took into consideration that, what I was saying, that what we call a view shed. This is the features on the, on the horizon that you can use to navigate. Putting all those together, we generated the paths that were most likely to be traversed under those assumptions. And then we compared that to the distribution of the oldest archaeological sites in Sahul. So mostly in Australia, a few in, in New Guinea. And that came up with these these pathways that we're calling superhighways that would have been used time and time again. And, of course, that information would have been passed on from generation to generation. I, I know you also factored in cultural elements like song lines and uh, the significance of rock art. Well, we haven't actually, unfortunately, we haven't really done that formally yet. But what has emerged from these very sort of geomorphic scientific principles is that a lot of these emergent superhighways seem to correspond to a lot of the song lines and the trade routes and even even some of the stock routes that um, the first Europeans borrowed from indigenous people because basically they understood that, well, this is the right way to go, so we should maybe go that way too. Now, Sahul uh, only ended about 8,000 years ago when uh, PNG and Tassie were split off by rising sea levels. Yeah, so for most of human history, it hasn't been Australia, it's been Sahul. And it's only recently, inverted commas, 8,000 years that we've had that separation. And there were actually periods of time uh, throughout the last 100,000 years or so where Tasmania was sometimes uh, separated, sometimes joined. But 
you know, the Gulf of Carpentaria really didn't become a gulf until about that time, 8,000 years ago. Before that, it was just a giant swamp. All this reinforces what an extraordinary culture and history we have here, doesn't it, Corey? Oh, well, it kind of blows my mind. I mean, people bandy around the numbers 65,000 years and it sort of washes over them. But when you think about it in, in the context of, say, you know, the history or prehistory even of uh, the Northern Hemisphere, you know, like the pyramids were yesterday compared to most Indigenous Australians. They've been here for such a long time and adapted to every single environment and possibly even had populations in the millions tens of thousands of years ago and, and managed to not just survive but thrive in these environments. We should be immensely proud as Australians of having that kind of heritage that goes back farther than any in situ culture in the world, even including Africa. It's frustrating, isn't it, that what is, should be such a source of pride for all of us is, uh, well, undervalued. Yeah, I'd say it is, and that's part of the the impetus behind the, the Centre of Excellence that I belong to is to make this kind of information more public knowledge and really understanding the complexities and the, and the richness of it is is something that we can hold on to. I mean, a lot of this information isn't even taught in schools today. We're trying to get a lot of that into the curriculum and make people really aware of the, the wonderful richness and culture and, and adaptability that Indigenous people have had since, well, since going back at least 65,000 years. Corey, I have to ask you this. Have you ever been interested in the Bradshaws, the famous and rather anomalous rock paintings found up north? Yeah, indeed. Well, it's not exactly my namesake, but I do share the name. Um, as it turns out, Bradshaw is Middle English for broad wood or big forest. And Corey, my my first name, means caveman in Scottish. So <laughs> I'm the caveman from the big forest. <laughs> and so this kind of thing really intrigues me, yes. Um, but I, I am no expert in rock art, that's for sure. I just couldn't resist asking. It's been <laughs> a tonic to talk to you. Welcome to our cave at Late Night Live. My guest has been Corey Bradshaw, Matthew Flinders Professor of Global Ecology at Flinders University. Good on you. Thank you very much. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.